I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Last week we were celebrating Ulambana. And we had our good friend and Dhamma teacher, Silas, giving a Dhamma talk. And I spoke to Silas after the, uh, the whole Ulambana ceremony, and he was commenting on how it had been the first time that he had ever heard those particular Mahayana chants spoken before, and certainly the first time he had heard them in a language he understood, in this case being English. And what was amazing to me is how he had come across this new knowledge, this new thing that he had never heard before, and immediately wove it into the Dharma talk that he gave, talking about the various names of the bodhisattvas that had come up, and commenting on how for him it wasn't so important if they were real or true, but looking at what lessons he could derive from their archetypes, looking at what they are, what they symbolize, and how they might be applied to himself as a practitioner of the path, someone putting the, the Dharma, the Dhamma, into practice. Looking at, say, uh, Avalokiteshvara in terms of compassion and the compassion that he himself might cultivate and those of us as well we might cultivate. The same goes with other qualities like wisdom and Kishidigarbha and various other names that came up. And to me, that was a very good and clear indication of someone who is both a good student and a good teacher of the Dhamma. It reminded me of this particular assertion that uh, the Venerable Ajahn Chah had, which is the very idea that everything is teaching us. Or we might look at it another way, when we have the, the Dhamma, the Dharma in mind and well situated in our minds, from everything that comes up in our life, we're able to derive a lesson. And so I saw that to be the case in Silas, where rather than getting bogged down in uh, sectarian differences on what is Theravada, what is Mahayana, what is true, what he might consider to be false, and none of that came into, into, uh, into the talk at all. It was just, what can we derive? What teachings can we take from this and apply it directly to what we're doing in terms of our thoughts, our words, and our actions? So a very valuable lesson that I've been thinking about ever since. As someone who's been practicing various spiritual paths for a long time uh, and curious about spiritual paths and learning about spiritual paths for a long time, I've had a bit of a, an interesting relationship to truth. I remember when I was very, very young, we're talking between the age of 8 to maybe 12 to 14, I came into the study of religion with this very wide-eyed innocence and naivety. I heard all of these stories, and all of them had an equal weight, had an equal measure of, of truth and, and meaning. I was this little boy that was in a, a Catholic household, but then I would watch uh, TV and see these documentaries about different religions, and so when it would spark my curiosity. I'd be looking around and thinking, oh, I want to learn more about this, more about that. And all of it, not only did I believe all of them to be true in the same way, but then I wanted them to be true all in the same way. And so I became 
this this devourer of culture and religion, wanting to learn about everything. And and I was this kid studying alone, so I was mostly reading through books and learning through books. And this was early internet, so it was even hard to find recorded talks from various teachers. So I was mostly just through words, through the printed word. And I did I did this for years, just uh, just taking in a lot of information and finding myself very. Uh, confused and disheartened because I wanted so many things to be true even if they might conflict in some way or overlap in odd ways or put me at odds with other spiritual and religious people who could sometimes be very entrenched in their point of view and not see much worthwhile in my very expansive sort of perennialist take that it's all it's all valid it's all true I kind of want to practice all of it I remember being quite young in middle school and feeling like I had to pick a particular path at any given moment and envisioned sort of like a like a mental landscape in, in my mind, this chamber full of candles with each candle representing a various religion. And so I, I'd light one at one point of the day and then go, okay, I'm going to put that candle out and light the other because I felt so divided and pulled. And this happened for, for quite a while until... Uh, after my teen years, once I was an adult at 18, 19, I was able to actually go out and start studying in a more uh, earnest way and actually sitting with teachers, and so I did. And I started to get very serious about my, my practice. Eventually, I got to a point where I didn't want any confusion for myself anymore. I felt like keeping myself open and receptive to all sorts of religious paths and all sorts of philosophies and all sorts of books and talks and everything. I just, I felt bombarded with messages and I couldn't make sense of any of it all. I, I eventually whittled my way down to a particular path, a particular set of teachers. I won't say teacher, but set of teachers. And I began this process of tuning everything else out. It felt like too much information, too much being, being, uh, brought into my mind and my heart, and I did feel deeply divided and deeply confused. So I made things very simple for myself. And what that meant is that all of this dabbling that I had done, I, I stopped doing. And I became very, very focused on one particular tradition. And what that meant is that all the various books that I had accumulated were ones that I either gave away, donated, sold, or sat on my bookshelf stagnating, getting a lot of dust. Eventually, though, I, I found that my relationship to truth began to change as I became more and more established in practicing the Dhamma and having a lot of faith and conviction in the Dhamma and also understanding how truth was utilized by the Buddha to, with his disciples. It became very useful for me to understand that in terms of categorical truth, truth that is universal and true all the time, according to the Buddha, mostly came down to two things. Truth in regard to the Four Noble Truths and truth in regard to uh, the need, the necessity to cultivate skillful qualities and abandon unskillful qualities. And those were in many cases, the only categorical truths that the Buddha really stuck to. Everything else that he shared in his Dhamma, he considered to be more instrumental. They were true in the sense that they helped us practice those categorical truths, 
to put the Four Noble Truths into practice, to see the duties assigned to those truths, to uh, comprehend suffering, to abandon its causes, to realize its cessation, to put the path into practice, and doing that practice through cultivating skillful qualities, abandoning unskillful qualities. And then so I began to see that in our own lives, we're often, aside from those categorical truths, usually dealing with instrumental truth, meaning that whatever we come across, we can hold in our hearts and minds in reference to the categorical truths, in reference to the Four Noble Truths, in reference to skillful qualities. Which means that of those books that I've kept, I can now look now, I can look at them now with a, a different lens, a different scope. One of those books that recently I dusted off as I was going through my books was the, uh, the Four Agreements. I don't know if, if anyone here is familiar with that particular book written by uh, Don Miguel uh, Ruiz, who uh, supposedly came across the Four Agreements through his learning of Toltec wisdom from a particular teacher he had and everything. And how I even got this book is, is kind of interesting. It was one of those books that I did get in my early 20s when I was getting more serious about my practice. I had stopped watching TV. I wasn't watching movies. I wasn't listening to music. I was spending most of my free time meditating. And it was at a time when uh, I started dating this girl. And I got so excited because, you know, I'd, I dated girls before, but this was also another spiritual person. She was into meditation. And I got all excited because here I had this girlfriend that liked to go to temples and liked to meditate. And I thought, wow, this is it. This is, this is the kind of relationship I was looking for. And the funny thing is, on her end, she, she found me a, a bit dull and sort of a stick in the mud. Because every time she called me to see what I was up to, I was meditating. And she'd be like, really? You're meditating right now? I'm like, yeah. That's how I spend most of my time. She's like, okay. But we were able to celebrate Christmas that time while we were together. And she was very kind. She knew that it was, it was Christmas and my birthday the, the, the following day. So she got me so many books for my birthday slash Christmas, which was the exact right thing to get because I love books. And so she got not only books from her own teacher because she was following a particular tradition, a, a Hindu tradition, uh, but she also got some books that are uh, very popular and very um, well-loved and regarded within sort of new age spirituality, certainly here in California. So she got me things like Khalil Gibran's uh, The Prophet, and she got me The Four Agreements and a few other books like that. And so the reason why it was still on my bookcase, The Four Agreements, was because of that sentimentality. She'd even written something very sweet you know, in, in, the, in the book, like, oh, this is a gift for Stephen, and a little cute saying, and then love so-and-so, and there it's been. And so it just felt inappropriate to just, you know, get rid of that book in some way, so I kept it. So all these years later, I can look at something like The Four Agreements, looking at someone like Don Miguel Ruiz, and the, the truthiness of the book itself no longer matters to me in the same way it did perhaps when I was in my early 20s, and very serious and sectarian in my practice. Because I remember receiving the gift, and at the time, reading and going, yeah, okay, but not important to me, not, not relevant to me. No useful teachings in here, because it's not from my particular teacher, my particular lineage. 
the very sectarian group I belong to. It's not this, so I'm going to just let it sit there. But keeping in mind instrumental truth, now I can turn to that book and go, okay, is there anything in this book that I can take and use as part of the practice? Am I able to not only see the Dhamma that is taught by the Buddha and his disciples throughout these last 2,600 years, but I, am I able to do that very thing that Venerable Ajahn Chah you know, said was important too, to look at everything as a teaching, to be able to look and find some aspect of truth. So, Don Miguel Ruiz, if you don't know, believed that he had received some Toltec wisdom. If you don't know who the Toltecs are, it's kind of interesting. The Toltecs are the mythologized ancestors of the Aztecs. The Aztecs themselves believed that they had some ancestors in the land that, that they were in, uh, in a certain part of Mexico. And these Toltecs were not only technologically advanced, but you know, also spiritually and philosophically advanced, so the story goes. And Don Miguel Ruiz believed that he had somehow received this wisdom through some teacher and some means. And all of that we can speculate on. But in his book, The Four Agreements, he provides four uh, important, what we might call, interpersonal lessons that he believes that if people put into practice, they will have much more uh, healthy, happy, and successful lives. So the four agreements go like this. The first one is to be impeccable with one's words. The second one is to not take things personally. The third one is to not make assumptions. And the fourth one is to always do your best. So, simple little agreements. Now, when I was younger, I read that and thought, yeah, okay, it seems trite and, and trivial, not important, not, not like the serious work I was doing in the Dhamma. But I look at it now and I see something different. The very first one, to be impeccable with one's words. I relate this to what the Buddha said he looked for in his students in the first place, which was to look for students that were honest and observant. Honesty becomes important because it is, in very many ways, the very way that we even approach enlightenment, liberation. In terms of our physical words, the words that actually leave our mouths, we see that in the, the scheme of awakening, once, once one becomes a stream enter, they no longer really feel compelled to break the precepts. They keep the precepts in mind, which means the precept to avoid unskillful speech, to lie, has been completely cured for them. But the honesty within that leads all the way to liberation, there's various ways we can be honest and dishonest with ourselves. The very fact that a non-returner is still dealing with uh, conceit means that there is some aspect of honesty that hasn't fully been mastered. So to be impeccable with our words. This can be uh, one of those things that can be difficult to um, employ in our lives to a high degree because, at least here in the West, but I think all over the world, we have this, this funny and fuzzy attitude around lies. I, I remember uh, growing up, 
I often was, was given this lesson by my parents without them realizing that they were giving me this lesson. That the, the truth didn't matter so much when it came to people's feelings. I had a very uh, sensitive and emotional mother who very much put a lot of stock in herself as a glorious chef, a glorious cook. And she actually was. She made amazing meals. But she, I could see the ways that she very much needed that praise. She needed, that, she needed everyone at the table to absolutely love her cooking, say it was the best ever. And when I was young, I was a very picky child. Most of the stuff I put in my mouth, I didn't like. I wanted plain, 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 plain. You know, if you think of quintessential American food, think of the cheeseburger. Oh, how people love the cheeseburger. And they love, I don't know why, just a really moist burger. They want ketchup and mustard and mayo and pickles and all sorts of juicy stuff in there. It's basically, basically dripping down your arm. And young me wanted bone dry. Meat, cheese, bun, that's it. You can even skip on the veggies, please. But what that meant is that my mom would make a lot of things that just didn't taste good on my palate. She could make it the best way ever, but it, it still wouldn't be something I would enjoy. I remember that one of my stepfather's favorite meals was uh, beef stroganoff, which uses a lot of sour cream, which is also something to, the, to this day I still don't really enjoy. And so my mom would make this big, creamy mass of egg noodles and beef, and it'd be my father's favorite, and he'd just be shoveling it into his his mouth and I'd be taking little nibbles and you know my mom would ask like oh how do you like it you know do you how is the food and I remember that if I were to be honest that would be not good I would see my mom get upset in some way she'd be you know closing the you know the, the shelves you know closing the cabinets in a particular way putting plates down in a certain way I learned from a very young age that what I should say is oh this is delicious I'm just not very hungry mother right and it's, that, this is a small, tiny example. It's the kind of thing that many of us have learned to do uh, as, as a, a kind of appropriate speech. When we learn those lessons young, I think that they have an effect as we go on in life. We learn that emotions matter more than truth. I think this was even true even in the time of the Buddha, for most people, your average person, that skillful speech always had to be agreeable speech, speech that people liked, speech that people wanted to hear, like, hmm, you know? And uh, we even see this in the suttas where often after a very long discourse that the Buddha has given, you know, it will end with a little, a little line about how all the, the monks sat there approvingly, like, yes, this was a good lesson, they were happy. There's only a couple instances, and only one really that comes to mind, where the Buddha gives a talk, and afterward the audience there, including the monks, were not satisfied. They didn't like that particular talk. There was one time that the Buddha was also talking to a, a king that was trying to, to trip him up on, on language and what skillful language looks like. Because in Buddhism we talk about skillful language in four ways. You know, not, not only that it be truthful, but that it be non-malicious, non-divisive, not idle chatter and everything. And this king was like, okay, well, you're always telling the truth, that's good, but are you really saying you never use any you know, harsh speech with your students? You never have any divisive speech saying, don't associate with people like this, or you say something that might hurt people's feelings? And that's when the Buddha talks, gives that example, of like, well, what happens if 
say your child swallows something sharp, you know, or is about to swallow something sharp in their mouths, like wouldn't you try to get it out? And might you not hook your finger in a certain way, scratch the child's mouth and even draw blood, right? And so the Buddha was making the point that when one is trying to be compassionate in one's speech and, and hold on to the truth, that the truth might not always be something that someone likes in the moment. It might not be agreeable, but it is something worth saying because of where it points to, where it leads to. We care about our friends on the path, and so we might point out like, hey, you know, that behavior you were doing, that's not so good. And it might hurt their feelings. They might, there might be that, that pride that's bruised. But ultimately, you're trying to live a skillful life and you're trying to support others in the skillfulness that they're cultivating as well. So in the example of my mother, I might, I might not have needed to lie, but I might have had to be honest. And then over time, I did learn to be honest. And my mom would respect those things. Like, well, Stephen really doesn't like when I make uh, chicken salad because he doesn't like mayo. So I made some barbecue chicken salad on the side. She would shred up chicken and add barbecue sauce rather than adding mayo. And so that way I can have some barbecue chicken sandwich when everyone else is having regular chicken salad sandwiches. Right. So eventually I could learn that, no, sometimes it's worth telling the truth because you get better results. And to take it to a dharmic level, we realize the truth, honesty, is always important. The Buddha considered that to be one of the most important of the precepts. Because the other precepts, you know, uh, people can come back from. But someone who is comfortable lying, takes delight in lying, for that person it's hard to say what they're not capable of. You know, they seem capable of anything. So for the Buddha it was very important that we be honest. So in reading something like Don Miguel Ruiz and his teachings on being impeccable with one's speech, impeccable with one's words, I can see the Dharma in that. I can look at that and go, yeah. There's, I can take a dharmic lesson from the idea of being impeccable with one's speech because I relate it to being skillful in one's speech the way the Buddha taught, looking at what it means to be truthful, to be non-malicious, to be compassionate and kind, to have good intent with the way I use my words, and to also not feel the need to speak all the time, to value silence, to really see silence as golden. And as my teacher says, to... You know, if you're going to speak, are your words uh, better than gold? Are they better than silence? That's the measure that uh, I try to live by now. Not taking things personally. This one can be tough. Uh, we, I think, as a culture, not just in the West, but all over the place, we can have that kind of sensitive reaction to wanting to be liked, to wanting to be well-regarded. And when we don't receive the kind of adulation or respect or uh, attention that we want from people, we might take that personally. I think that in this age that we live in now where most people are plugged into the internet, that's even more the case. We can look at the kind of stuff that we put out there and we can think about why we put it out there the way we do. An example of this would be uh, yesterday, I went to my favorite tea place. It's called Callisto in uh, Pasadena. Beautiful tea place. The people who own it are also wonderful. But being a modern-day business, what do they have to do? They have to be on social media. They have to have a Facebook. They have to have an Instagram. They have to have any other kind of account to get attention, to get to be noticed, to have all that. And 
even our temple's no different. We got to try to be out there in some way, otherwise people don't know we exist, right? That's the nature of life today. What happens on the internet is somehow relevant to the real world. So I go there to Callisto, there's my friend working at the counter, and what is she busy doing? She's eyeing up her shot. They just made their new chai masala uh, scones, and she's going like this, going like that, like that. And she takes the picture. Okay, hopefully that's a good picture. Hopefully once that's posted, people will like it, right? But the thing is, she herself does not run the Instagram account. She has a friend do that for her for a very special reason. Because if she actually had to upload the pictures and she had to see how many people liked or commented, that might be a bit discouraging. They're a new business. They've only been open for a year. A new business amongst a lot of other competing businesses on Instagram. So she puts all this work into this beautiful picture. You know, the plate just so, the scone just so, a little thing on the plate to even kind of spruce up little herbs or something. All this, all this work done for maybe five, six likes. Someone else posts something else, random. Something they saw on the street, some little joke, the little blurb, thousands of likes. And it can be very easy to look at something like that and go, that says something about me. That says something about me. Now this is a light example, but one that I use just because as we live our lives more online these days, certainly for younger people, you know, I recognize I'm on the younger side of a crowd that is a bit mixed in age, but for the people that I see that are my age and younger, those things tend to really matter. People build up their self-esteem around what happens online, how many likes they get, how many interactions they get. You know, I think of a friend of mine who will post very, very, very frequently for a period of like a month or so. Lots of pictures, lots of videos, lots of interaction, getting, garnering all of these likes and comments and interest in what they're doing, and then they will completely turn off their accounts, disable them for maybe one to two months at a time. Where'd they go? Because after a while, it gets too much. It gets too intense. Both the likes and the dislikes, the good comments, the negative comments, it all is eating up the mind in some way, and this person has to completely unplug, and I can understand the impulse. We can take this to even stronger examples, you know. Uh, in our day-to-day -day interactions, we might come across someone who is in a bad mood that day. You know, think about the, me almost being late here today. Why was I almost late? Because of all the traffic going on. I don't know why Vermont is closed. I saw a lot of Salvadoreño people, people from El Salvador with their flags and shirts, so I think something like that's happening over there. I'm not sure. But all I know is that there were a lot of people taking that very personally as they were trying to drive to where they were driving. All these cars are backed up. There's people honking. There's driving like this, like that. People are, ah, you can see the different things they're doing with their fingers at each other. You can see them taking this one thing that happened for not anything involving them and making it about them. They're taking something that is very impersonal and personalizing it. They're making it about themselves and making themselves in this tug of war. Now someone has to be a protagonist and someone else has to be an antagonist. I remember that when I was working on my Master of Divinity, we had a course that was on uh, 
sort of formulating our own spiritual journey, putting putting language to the, the journey that we had been on spiritually. It's relevant to the field of chaplaincy because people tend to tell stories in chaplaincy. Uh, they call them verbatims. But uh, there's also the story that a chaplain will tell about him or herself in terms of their spiritual life. Like how did they get to where they are now? Looking at their lives in a very... Um, yeah, story-driven way, looking at themselves as the hero of their own story. In fact, one of the classes I took was specifically that. We spent the whole semester going over the hero's journey, which is not a bad archetype to use. It can be relevant to look at one's life that way. But I think that in our modern day, many of us can go through life with a bit of what has now been called main character syndrome. We tend to think that whatever it is that we're doing is far more important than what everyone else is doing that we have this important story and everyone else is playing like secondary to that. They're supporting characters in whatever story that we're on. Which means that we have sometimes this very myopic gaze. We're only looking at what's happening to us, what we are doing, and we forget that the other people in our lives are also telling their own stories, living their own lives, having their own things happening. And so we can tend sometimes to forget that. We end up dehumanizing others and thinking that whatever that they're up to is only relevant to how it affects us. So that's why I bring up the example with the roads. Because it's something really relatable to all of us in Los Angeles, any of us who drive, because we've all seen road rage. I would say that that's an example of someone who has uh, taken in the belief that they're the main character of their story and certainly take the actions of others personally as in a personal offense to them rather than just something happening around them. And I have found examples not just only in Don Miguel Ruiz and his Four Agreements, but also in, in studying psychotherapy and studying existential therapy, this, this idea that we are storytellers, we are narratively driven, we do create stories not only in regard to ourselves but other people and their motivations. To put a Buddhist lens on it, we might say that we're always in the business of creating worlds. That around any desire that we have, any craving or clinging uh, that we do, anything that we're doing with our lives, we tend to, to build a world around it. Bhava is the word in Pali. We're, we're building a self. We're building a world. We're, build, we're becoming, constantly in the state of becoming. That's one way of looking at it. There are philosophically many ways to look at becoming, you know. But that's one way. And by realizing that, by realizing that we're always narratively driven, we're always creating with sankara, formulating, uh, conditioning, constructing, it means that we have a choice. Not only the choice to not take what others do in our lives personally, but also not to take what's happening in our own minds personally either. This is quite popular to be said now, but worth saying again, which is that you're not everything that you think, or you don't have to claim everything that you think. Something along those lines. That even the thoughts that you have about yourself, you don't need to take personally in the sense you don't need to claim it as I, me, or mine, or even relating to I or me. So that's one way I can look at that lesson of not taking things personally through a dharmic lens. I think that this is highly related to assumptions as well. You know, we, 
We can make assumptions about why people do things, why we do things. We can have assumptions about the way the world works. And that can really harm us. That can really get in the way of our progress on the path. Even the assumption that I had as I had that period of my life where I became very sectarian. Like there, I knew there were, there were all these Buddhist paths and I'm on this one. The others are wrong. And in, in regards to other spiritual paths, they are also wrong. I had a very entrenched view. What the Buddha would then regard as a thicket of views. Something that I'm building my own becoming around, my own world around, my own identity, claiming I, me, and mine. I assumed then that there could be no dharma that is outside of what the Buddha strictly spoke, which is ignoring the fact that the Buddha taught the dharma so that we can take it in, so that it becomes a part of our mind, a part of our heart. It becomes the way that we relate to the world. What the Buddha and his disciples have pointed to is that you are the one that liberates yourself, which means that Ultimately, you take in the Dhamma so that it becomes your refuge, your island, and you become your own teacher. Now, that doesn't mean that in an undiscerning way, you just start, start gobbling stuff up the way I did when I was a kid. I would say that when I was that 12-year-old kid, I was very undiscerning. I didn't care what messages came along with all the stuff that I found interesting. I just took it all in. All of it, all of it, all of it. But taking that position on categorical truth in regard to the Dharma and instrumental truth means that now, ah, I don't have to believe those assumptions that I have about everything else around me. I can listen with a different ear. I can listen with what we might call a Dharmic ear. What lesson can I derive from what I'm hearing? Even if it's a lesson to not do or not be like whatever it is I'm hearing. And that can be an important lesson for those of us practicing Buddhism in the West because we are not in a predominantly Buddhist country. We oftentimes, especially converts like myself and others might relate to this as well, often your day-to-day interactions are with people who are not Buddhist. That they come from their own wisdom traditions, their own religions, their own philosophies, and they have their own things to say about how the world works, what one should do ethically, what is spiritually rewarding. And we can be like the sectarian who cuts them off and doesn't want to listen. Or we can listen with that dharmic ear and go, okay, I'm not going to jump to assumptions. I'm not going to jump to conclusions. I'm not going to approach the situation with prejudice, but I'm going to listen with a receptive ear and listen for what I can apply. What I can apply to the path. What I could apply in terms of the Four Noble Truths and skillful action. What, when I'm listening to it and then put it into practice, leads to my long-term welfare and happiness, the long-term welfare and happiness of others. What, when I listen to it and put it into practice, actually starts chipping away at my craving and clinging? What leads to disenchantment, dispassion? And that's the mark. So I try not to jump to conclusions now because I don't actually know that what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, what's actually being received by the sense media by these six senses is going to be useful. This is helpful for me being once again a student at University of the West where oftentimes I'm around a lot of people from various traditions. And it's funny, there was a period of time there where I noticed that that irritation not around people of other religions. You know, if a Christian or a Hindu or a Muslim says something, it somehow kind of washes over and I can find that common ground. 
what would often be the point of irritation is hearing other Buddhists say things where I would, ooh, I would react to it because it seemed to conflict with my understanding of the Dhamma. A very uh, recent example of something that I would have reacted very poorly to before was someone in my, my class who is a, a very, uh, very knowledgeable and, and respected uh, Mahayana monk. But we were talking about various aspects of tradition and he said this thing that, you know, if, if I had heard it the wrong way, if I had made those assumptions, jumped to conclusions, taken things personally, I might have been offended by what he said, which is, he says, well, you know, in Mahayana we have uh, Buddha nature. You know, we have this, this belief that all people have Buddha nature. And, you know, uh, I just don't understand, I, I can't really comprehend how someone who's a Theravada Buddhist uh, would ever want to do any chaplain work or ministerial work or, or help anyone really in any compassionate way because they don't believe in Buddha nature. And it was one of those things that I, I could have I jumped at, I could have I leapt at. But I, I did address it because it, I, I believed it required addressing. And I said, well, it's true that in my tradition, in Theravada Buddhism, we don't believe ontologically in Buddha nature. That like, if you open up your heart, you'll find a little Buddha going, hi, you know, we don't believe that. Like in any, because sometimes you'll see artwork, people have little Buddhas in their hearts, you know. But it's, in our tradition, we do very much have the belief in potential. That all beings have the potential to be awakened that all beings have the potential to put the Dharma into practice and see results and take those results all the way to Nibbana. But that potential exists because we all have the power to make changes, make choices right now. We can look to the Buddha as an example in the way that he didn't believe that he was innately special, intrinsically special inside. He believed that he had rediscovered something and put it into practice and reached its ultimate aim, its conclusion, which is release, unbinding. And he believed that others could do it too if they put the path into practice. Relating again to those categorical truths, he taught the Four Noble Truths for a reason, because they lead to release. He taught that skillful action actually leads to results, so we should always be working on skillful qualities. Those were the truths that he held up because those are the things that when we apply them, we see those results ourselves. So that takes us, I think, to the last point, which is to uh, always do our best. I can see the Dharma lesson in that immediately because we are striving ardently with good energy, with good effort. So I will wrap up this talk by encouraging all of us to take this lesson from uh, Don Miguel Ruiz on doing our best and apply that to our Dharma practice. We have this moment right now to practice ardently with energy. And we're practicing for a good reason. We're practicing for our happiness, our true and real happiness something that really, truly can be achieved in this lifetime. So I'll, I'll end my talk there. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>